Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi everybody, this is the Cricket Badger podcast. Each badger marks the track with its own scent. His black legs are short but very powerful for digging. The name badger probably comes from the French word bécher, meaning digger. Hello everybody, welcome along to another edition, it's the Cricket Badger Podcast, I'm James as always taking you through this one, I've got a very special guest indeed for you today, but before that thank you very much to tvsportsblog.com for their continued support of the Cricket Badger Podcast, it's been massively appreciated, give their website a look, give them a follow on Twitter at tvsportsblog and thanks to you for listening during lockdown and hopefully beyond. Great guests planned for the future. We're also going to be doing previews of each of the England against West Indies test matches because we've got cricket bat badges. It might not be cricket as we know it in terms of having full houses, etc. But at least we've got cricket back. It's a start and county cricket is just around the corner too. So things are starting to settle down into whatever this new normal is going to bring us. And I can't wait. But today... On the Cricket Badger podcast, it's a two-parter because when I got chatting to Dougie Brown, the former Warwickshire, Scotland, England cricketer, former Warwickshire and UAE head coach, we got chatting and we kept going on and chatting and chatting some more. And hopefully you'll enjoy this chat as much as I enjoyed chatting to Dougie. Met him a few times on my travels. Really good bloke. And we talk about his time in the game. He takes on the 20 questions. We also talk a little bit about match fixing as well, because obviously his tenure as UAE boss finished with a lot of the UAE players under a cloud at the moment with match fixing. That is all still up in the air, as you'll hear. Dougie's certainly not involved in the spot-fixing, match-fixing allegations, but certainly got an opinion on how the game can clean itself up going forward. But Dougie played for a great Warwickshire side, so there's plenty for us to discuss on this edition of the Cricket Badger podcast. Cricket Badger Fact File Douglas Robert Brown Former England, Namibia, Scotland, Warwickshire and Wellington All-Rounder. Nine one-day internationals for England and 16 for Scotland and also two T20 internationals. 
a highest score of 50 not out and 21 international wickets. A member of the Warwickshire treble winning side of 2004 and ever present over the following decade. He has been head coach of Namibia, Warwickshire and the UAE. A keen golfer, fitness fanatic and media pundit. Welcome to the podcast Doogie. Let's have a badger chat. How are you anyway? Yeah, we're good, thanks, mate. We've, um, we're have we just kind of adhering to lockdown restrictions and stuff here in Dubai, which is, um, you know, obviously it's pretty strict. Over here, you know, we're one of the first countries to shut schools and, you know, ban any travel, ban going out and all that sort of stuff, even to a point whereby if you want to go to the supermarket, you've actually got to apply for a permit okay. to go out. And if you're out without a permit and that sort of stuff, you get massive fines. So, but yeah, it's, it's okay. It's all right. You know, we can still go out and exercise as long as you wear a mask. Um, if you don't, you get fined a $1,000. But yeah, obviously it's starting to get quite hot now as well. So there's not, you know, people are still exercising and going out and I am and all that sort of stuff. But it's, um, it's just hot to be running or doing anything when you're wearing a mask. Yeah, but that, I mean, it would kill you if you couldn't yeah. exercise, would it? I mean, it'd be fine for me. I'd just sit, in, I'd oh, sit and watch the telly. But you'd, you're always running around <laughs> doing stuff, aren't you? That's the thing. So we, we love it. We, I go out every day. I'm doing about, about 40 kilometres a week running. And my wife's getting out. She's getting into the back garden, getting on a on a bike and the turbo, turbo trainer and stuff like that. So it's, we're keeping ourselves um, occupied. And we've got a little one as well. We've got six, uh, an eight-week-old, which is uh, it's keeping us both busy. So, oh, so, so did, that's all did good. your new child arrive during lockdown then? Yeah, the, the first day we were in lockdown. So basically, Blimey. we were locked down on the 22nd of March, and she was born on the 22nd of March. So yeah, so it was it was kind of strange. You know, you go into a hospital and everything's very different to how you would normally be treated going to a hospital. You know, temperature checks and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, it was it was, it was fine actually. She was, my wife was in for a, for a couple of nights and, and out again. So you won't forget that birth, will you? For a while. Nah, exactly, exactly. No, we won't for sure. <laughs> And it's, I mean, she would, you never forget that because it's like, it's unprecedented, isn't it? The, the times for everybody. None of us have ever experienced anything like this. And she's a, she's a little belter. So it's, and it's quite been quite nice, actually, being locked down and you can actually spend time with your family, which is, I'm sure that's not everybody's bag because people like getting away from their family and stuff. But it's been really good for us. Yeah, because usually in the past, if you'd had a child, you'd have been off doing work and doing all sorts of different things. So you can actually immerse yourself in it and change a few nappies now, can't you? Exactly. So I would have been away with, you know, the woodwind cricket on and all that sort of stuff and blah, blah, blah. But obviously, you know, nothing, nothing at the moment. Uh, obviously, I, I don't work for the ECB or uh, board anymore anyway, so it's, it's, it doesn't really matter. But it's, um, yeah, it's, uh, we, we'd have been away during that time. We'd have been in the States. We'd have been in PNG, Australia in a couple of weeks then going to PNG and all that sort of stuff so the fact that we're not doing that and, and we're still here it's, it's just brilliant So what is your current situation at the minute Doug because last time I saw you um, it was the Emirates T20 wasn't it about 18 months two years ago and you did a bit of commentary and, and we met another few chats there and I yeah. obviously met you before when you were working for the UAE national side too and that's obviously come to an end now was that a disappointment or I mean it was a disappointment obviously you know not qualifying for World T20 was a, a huge disappointment especially as you went in there as a pretty much the highest ranked team in the competition Scotland were ranked slightly slightly above us but it was you know, we, we've got a really good T20 side and, and not to qualify and for all the corruption scandals to be breaking the day before the tournament and for us to be sort of trying to work a way out of the corruption scandal as the tournament was progressing. It was it took its toll on, on everybody. Uh, all the guys who were still there just trying to, you know, keep our head above the water, so, so to speak. And it was really frustrating because we've done a lot of work. We've done a lot of work with the coaching staff, the support staff, the players, 
we had grown enormously in the three years up to that point. And then it was kind of, you know, things that we just didn't know were going on got in the way of what we were capable of, of doing and, and actually kind of pulled a rug from under our feet. Even then, you know, having to win one of the last two matches, one against the Netherlands, one against Scotland, the two very good teams, you know, on a day we, we back ourselves against, you know, like-for-like oppositions anytime. You, you back yourself to win one of these two matches and qualify for the World Cup. But at that stage of the tournament, we were, we were kind of be, we'd been punched so many times. We had nothing left to give. And the minute that both these teams came and gave us a punch first up, it was like we just, you know, we had done a punch and we just... We just couldn't punch anymore, and, and unfortunately, we, we weren't competitive in either of the last two games. But yeah, really disappointing. But you know, up was onwards, and, and hopefully, we look forward to the next chapter. Was it three of your players got done for for corruption? Uh, well, the, we lost six players from the squad that uh, literally from the day before the tournament started. Six players of a starting eleven, and we lost. Now, clearly, that still a process that's ongoing but it was really disappointing because we had prepared incredibly well we had just been to the Netherlands and we had, we had played you know pretty well over there we had won the series 4-0 uh, we had prepared really well having come back to the UAE and we were really ready for the tournament in conditions that we we know incredibly well you know a very good method tried and tested players really clear role definition and all that sort of stuff and then the problem is when you lose the cornerstone of your of your team, you know, both your opening batters, your number three batter, your wiki keeper, your two opening bowlers, it knocks a bit of the stuffing out of you, especially when two of these guys are ranked top 20 in the world. You know, they're good cricketers, game winners on their own accord <laughs> very, very regularly. And you lose both of them and then four other guys. It's, um, it really does kind of knock you for six. And it did, you know, but you wouldn't have known. So the outside world, you probably wouldn't have known that there was a sort of major stuff going on because we we managed to to play it down really well and and looked like nothing was actually happening. Credit to the players and, and all the support staff for doing that. But when it really came down to it and when we were put under pressure, we really struggled. And that was in the last two games. And you know, it's not really surprising that we we didn't manage to get across the line. Disappointing that we didn't. Yeah, really frustrating that we didn't. But you know, it, it was something that we just couldn't do anything about. You know, there's stuff going on behind the scenes that we had no idea. When you started at the the UAE national side, you, you took it over initially temporarily, didn't you? And then it looked like somebody else was going to get that job. But the players, you know, to a, to a man in that squad, wanted you in charge and uh, and made sure they got you in the end. And it seemed a really nice little story that that they came through for you and you were enjoying your time out there. Do you, do you feel? I mean, obviously, as you said, the it's an ongoing kind of case, really, isn't it? But do you feel let down by the players? Um, well, it's, I feel let down. Yeah, I do feel let down by the players. If if it you yeah. know it holds out to be uh, found that that's what happened, you know, obviously at the minute um, it's just people have been suspended, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, and you know, I'm not going to go into the detail of of the whys and wherefores of all that sort of stuff. That's up to the up to the ICC anti corruption unit to sort out and lawyers and, and things. But I suppose if if it's found to be true, then of course I feel let down because. We were working towards something which, as a cricketer, you get very few chances. As, a, as an associate cricket, you, cricketer, you don't get that many chances to go and participate in global events. You know, we had grown really well. You know, the players were working incredibly hard. We had developed as a team. We had developed as individuals. Myself and the, the other guy, the other coaches had invested a, a hell of a lot of time and effort and hard work 
uh, and hours and all that sort of stuff into all of the players. And we remain consistent with the players. Even when, you know, players had had a disappointing series, we stuck by the players, we continued to develop them. And we were getting to a stage whereby we, we were actually turning into a very, very strong side. We got to the highest ever world global ranking, of, I think number 13, you know, unprecedented for the UAE uh, in both formats, 2020 and 50 over cricket. And we were doing really well. You know, we beat Zimbabwe in the World Cup qualifiers in Zimbabwe. We ran a couple of other fairly major teams close. We played against the Black Caps and probably should have beaten them in a 2020 game. We just fell short. But, you know, we were coming on really, really well. And guys were actually starting to grow and develop. And, you know, to get to the, the eve of a global tournament and not to get across the line because of um, the circumstances that we found ourselves in was really... Uh, really, really disappointing, and you know, could that, could we have changed that? Well, no, because we didn't actually know that, that anything was going on. If indeed it was going on, so you know, time will tell whether whether you know the, all the allegations prove to be uh, to be true, and uh, and players you know carry the the wrath of the ICC and that sort of stuff. But you know, we'll leave that to them. But you know, I feel a bit. If it is true, then I'll, I'll obviously feel, and the rest of the players who were not involved in that quite clearly feel quite let down by the whole situation. Understandably so, understandably so. And it's, it's really disappointing for you. It's disappointing for, as you say, the rest of the squad who are looking forward to yeah, getting to something really big for them. But I guess from Cricket's mm. point of view, it's good that these measures are in place to track guys down that are, are maybe bending rules and uh, and taking money for, uh, under false pretenses. Oh, yeah. 100%. You know, and, and myself and the rest of the coaches, we, we got right behind the ITC. We helped them with everything. And I think that's the right thing to do. You know, I would hate to think that if you're part of a dressing room, whether you're coach or player, support staff, whatever it is, uh, and you're sitting down on a chair and you think for one minute that the person to your left or your right is corrupting the game in any way, shape or form, then I couldn't, I, I couldn't live with that. It's, um, you know, as a player, all I was interested in doing was giving my best so that the team could actually come out on top and just do what I could to influence the game in a positive way. You know, to think that we actually managed to achieve what we did and potentially there were so many players, you know, players don't get paid to overachieve. You know, that's, that's down to the contract to, to work that one out. You know, if they're, if they're overachieving and the, the, the contracts reflect that, you know, if they get involved in, in things they shouldn't do, then clearly they're not getting paid to overachieve because you can't influence that as, as easily as you could influence it the other way. And to get to, you know, a highest ever ICC global ranking of 13 in both formats was phenomenal, really, if indeed it proves to be the case that so many players were corrupting um, the matches the way they were, the, they've been sort of, or oh, the fingers being pointed at them. I mean, take, take those players out of the equation now, because as you say, that's all under, under discussion and we'll, we'll find out further down the line with that. But in terms of match fixing, spot fixing and the corruption side of stuff, do you think we'll ever see an end to it? And um, that's the first part of the question. The second part of the question is, if you're found guilty, I mean, my view is that it should be zero tolerance. You, you're gone from cricket because everybody knows the score, don't they? You, ahead of every tournament these yeah. days, players are told the rules, told what to look out for. And if you don't report it or if you take money for, for fixing a match, I think that should be it for you. Yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah. So the, the first part of the question, will you ever see an end to it? I would hope so. Let, let's be honest. The, the ICC and the corruption unit, they've got some phenomenal guys in there, you know. People who are, are long uh, experienced dealing with stuff a whole lot more uh, tricky than, than anti-corruption stuff. But they do a phenomenal job. They're probably busier than they ever have been because there are so many 
opportunities for players these days to get wrapped up in the wrong type of thing. You know, there's so many franchise tournaments around the world, and, and obviously the more that of these that open up, the more opportunity there is for corruptors to get involved in the game, and and that's something we're all really keen not to see happen. So, will we ever stamp it out? Maybe not, but I, I tell you, I think the players who do um, get involved in it are probably particularly stupid because every single tournament, you you know exactly what is and is not ex- uh, is allowed and what is expected of you uh, as an ambassador of the, the global game. So if you do get wrapped up in something, not knowing what the rules are is, is not an excuse because everybody does know what the rules are. So whether you know something's going on and don't report it, that's just as bad as getting involved and taking money for doing stuff yourself, you know? The game is a professional game and professionalism uh, professionalism and friendship are two very different things when it comes to being involved in that sort of thing. You know, everybody's got a professional ethic that they need to abide by. And I would like to think that if, if people knew that something was going on, uh, that they would report it, whether it was something the mate that was doing or, or whatever, you know, because that's part of it. If you're a if you're a professional and you know you've got people looking up to what you do and aspiring to be kind of like yourself, you'd like to think that you actually adhere to the rules of engagement, the rules of the game, and, and part of that is the anti-corruption rules, and you just can't get on the wrong side of them. Everybody knows what you need to do, so you know saying I didn't know the rules that that's that's a, a fairly lame excuse. If found guilty, would you give people a second chance these days? Yeah. Nah, no, nah, I wouldn't because there's no excuse. Everybody knows whether you're, you're a young player. I think the, the difficulty lies um, in, in a number of cultures, particularly sort of uh, like maybe a South Asian culture where, whereby the senior players are, are almost demigods and they are com- completely respected just because they are senior players in that, in that environment. And it must be really difficult if you've got a senior player telling you or asking you to do something that you maybe think might be a little bit strange. But because they are who they are, you actually do it anyway or don't do something anyway. And, you know, that, that's a tricky one. But I would say yeah, zero tolerance. And I think what you would, you would soon get is a change in culture um, from people who are swayed by the peers to do something they know that they shouldn't be doing to a point whereby people can actually make their own decisions because they want to have a career in the game. And I think if you make it zero tolerance, then, yeah, there'll be some really, really tough ones for players who get involved in something that you know, maybe is not as bad as other people, but actually they get found foul of, of that interruption code. But let's be honest, you know, the only way you can clean it up is by stamping it out. And if you, you know, by making it zero tolerance and giving people life bans, and you, you are going to, over the course of time, make people think long and hard whether they do get involved in something or don't. Uh, and you would like to think that the, the, the punishment for a crime would actually, in many ways, dissipate the crime in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think whether it's a, you're taking a fiver or five million pounds, it's still corruption and there should be no wriggle room in that. I think the, probably the only grey area for me is if somebody's found guilty and then they cooperate and they then shed light on everything else that's going on and, and impl- you know implicate other people and stuff like that and help out um, the mm. authorities with their inquiries. But having said that, they've already done the crime themselves, haven't they? So that, that's maybe a little bit of a grey area, but... Possibly, but again, you know, the, the crime has been committed in the first place, isn't it? So, yeah. and that's that's the thing, you know, it's like we're trying to the game's trying to stamp out the crime in the, in the initial stages. And the, the tricky thing amongst people and in the associate world is that actually associate players get a chance to play 
some pretty big games. And a lot of the games now are televised or streamed, which creates opportunities for people to, you know, to get involved doing things that they shouldn't be doing. Uh, and also as well, the, the associate game isn't flush with money like maybe the full member game, you know. So a player could quite easily be swayed for a sum of money that a different player playing for one of the major teams would just not be swayed by, you know. So I think that's a really difficult one um, because the money in the associate game isn't anywhere near like it is in the, you know, with the big boys. So I think as associate guys and I think everybody understands that that's uh, an area that you know the anti-corruption um, unit needs to be very vigilant of, and we as players and coaches need to be really vigilant in that in, in that domain because there are a lot of people trying to do stuff that they and they know they can get to associate players that they, for, the, for a price point that you can't get to to the other guys. Cricket Badger Podcast is brought to you in association with tvsportsblog.com. Excellent sporting content. It's well worth a look and give them a follow on Twitter at tvsportsblog. We've been talking for over 15 minutes now, Dougie, and I've not actually introduced you yet. <laughs> so this is the peril oh. of one of the perils of pressing record and as we start chatting and we just get carried away. And then, uh, yeah, so welcome to the Cricket Badger Podcast, Dougie Brown. It's good to talk to you again. Thanks very much. Nice to be here, Jim. How are you doing? <laughs> hey, I'm, I'm all right, actually. I, I mean, you mentioned lockdown at the start of it. I've, I've living in a one-bedroom flat in Bradford these days, and I've been using my time, I hope wisely, doing a, a lot of podcasting and uh, doing stuff to try and get myself um, stronger when we come out of lockdown in the end. But it's not it's not necessarily been an easy time. But you're on the um, show today mm. to take on the Cricket Badger podcast 20 questions i'm sure we'll come back to some of the uae memories and obviously memories of your long and distinguished playing career as well as we go through these answers but question number one dougie brown is if not a cricketer what would you have done with your life if cricket had not existed well i went to to university i studied um, physical education so i was planning to be a PE teacher i went to london i was working in a bank for 18 months after school i didn't really like it i didn't really know what else to do but then eventually i i took a plunge went to to PE college in London and um, studied there for four years to be a PE teacher. So without, yeah, I guess if cricket hadn't been there, that's what I would be doing now. I'd be, I'd be teaching PE somewhere in the world. And my memories of a lot of pre-season trips when you were with Warwickshire and I remember you running around a hotel in Barbados training with Ashley Giles. Um, I've just kind of every, every single memory of coming into contact with you at some stage, I see you running around doing something physical. There was a, a story that Phil Tufnell told on Radio 5 um, Live on his show with Vaughan the other night where he said that on one of, he was playing himself down, but he was on the bike on an exercise bike on an England trip. And you ran past him. He was on his bike and you ran past him because you were the fittest human being that he'd ever ever seen, I think, Phil Tufnell. <laughs> the hilarious thing about that was that we, so we were in um, a place called Club La Santa in Lanzarote. On a, on a, it was like a, bringing every single England player together. It was about 50 cricketers who were all in, on the England programme, under-19s, A-team, one-day squad, uh, test squad. We were all there. Uh, and Bumble was, was coach and all the support staff. We were all there. Basically, we'd had a, a really good week. It had been really hard. Uh, and it sort of culminated and we were doing this, this triathlon. And the way they had pitched it was they, they went with, they went in order. So everybody was ranked, you know, one to 50, if you like. And, and I was sort of up at the top and, and tough as wasn't. He was down the bottom. <laughs> so I was, I was sort of put together with him and we had to do a swim and then a, a cycle and then a run. But we all had to do every bit of it. But, one person could do more of it. For argument's sake, if we had to swim 200 metres, you know, I could swim 
50 meters and, and my partner could do 150 meters. But you had to cover the distance yeah. together. Okay, And so we, we strategized the night before um, in the bar as you do. Um, and everybody else was doing the same sort of thing because we, you know, it was a bit of fun, but you wanted to compete. You wanted to be as, as good as you can and try and work out the right strategy. And Tuffle said he was a really good, um, really good swimmer. He had swum for the school and all that sort of stuff. And I was like, okay, well, you can do a bit more than that than me. And I'll do the running and the bike. And we had two bikes. So it was a mountain bike and a road bike. And so Tuffle had the road bike because he could go a bit quicker. And the bit I was doing, I said, well, I'll do the majority of the running and so on and so forth. Anyway, we devised a strategy. We were doing loops. It was like a 10-kilometer loop. And in the end, I had to do something like 15 kilometers running. And I hadn't seen after after he dived into the swimming pool and then set off doing breaststroke. I was like, I think we might have got this a bit wrong. So he's doing <laughs> his breaststroke. Hickey in the other lane is doing, you know, he's like chewing the water up, up and down, tumble tons and all that sort of stuff. All, all that sort of stuff. And in the end, there was a great big bit of rock. I was blowing hard and it was really hot as well. And uh, I ran past this rock, and there was like a, and there was like smoke coming up from behind the rock. And I saw a bike down on its side, <laughs> and I actually stopped and looked in, and, and there was toughers in there having a fag. <laughs> and it looks like we're blowing it. <laughs> I was like blowing it. I was, I was, we finished last, and I was, I, 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 honestly, I'd never run as hard and cycled as hard as I had ever done over the course of that sort of hour and a half period. It was unbelievable. Um, and we yeah, we rocked up finishing last. It was very funny. I, I take it you've not entered another triathlon with Phil Tufnell since? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. But I wouldn't I wouldn't knock uh, yeah, I would I would I would do it again. I would do it with I'm sure I'd back him this time. Fed up of collecting your team's matchday subs? Worried about carrying cash post COVID nineteen? Try slateapp.co.uk. Less contact than contactless. Slate, the smartest way to collect weekly match fees and more. Download the app, slateapp.co.uk. Not just for cricket, any clubs that collect subs. It just makes sense. Stick it on the slate. Slateapp.co.uk. Who has been the biggest influence on your cricket career? Things, actually. When, when I went to university, I was sort of... I, the, the easy answer would be, you know, the coaches and players that you've come, come to, but... Initially, before I go to probably the biggest cricket influence, the, the biggest influence I ever had was when I left Scotland and went down to London. And I was living in the halls of residence first year and I, and I got wrapped up sort of with a lot of um, athletes. They were, they were actually running, jumping, throwing for GB. They were in the, the different GB squads. And I just thought they were the, the most phenomenal people ever because, in effect, they were amateur. Uh, they were training every single you know, minute that there was allowed them the incredibly disciplined professional guys you know in the gym all the time doing every, anything they could just to gain you know a tiny tiny margin of what the personal best was at that point and I ended up living with them um, with three other lads so one was a, a, a Great Britain under 23 javelin thrower uh, one was a karate player for for England another one was just a brilliant sportsman and if I'm honest the three of these guys in conjunction with other people I sort of wrap myself up in. There's two ways you go when you go to university. One is you go, you know, the Wednesday night weekend crew where you go into the bar and you basically go on a Wednesday night and, you, you know, you stay there until the weekend type thing. And I wasn't there. It was, a, you know, it was, a, it, was a, it was a PE college. And, you know, we all wanted to be as good as we can be. But for me, the, the three guys I live with, 
because it became very competitive in, in my house as to who was doing what and how and how quickly and how far and all that sort of stuff. So I think that was initial influence in my desire to, to push my own boundaries, to be as fit as I could possibly be towards my sport. I think I always said my mantra was, you know, I'd be happy giving myself the best chance to be as good as I could be, but I would never be able to live myself if I didn't give myself that chance in the first place because I knew that my starting point was so far behind a number of my peers. You know, they were far more skillful players, traders, and more experienced at that level. And I knew that I had to work in a different way. So they were, that was the initial starting point. But then when I got to, to Warwickshire, um, myself and Ashley Giles, we, and we lived together for three or four years. And I think, you know, he's a really competitive guy as well. And he worked incredibly hard. You know, we both had some, some good times as well, downtimes, but it, you know, his, Sort of discipline around what his cricket was I think I probably helped him with that and and because he's so competitive and driven he helped me to to maintain that in in my sort of preparation and my cricket as well so yeah it's, it's a very different types of um, people that get you to the point where you are and you, you kind of take that through your whole career with you even to this point now did you come to cricket late then if you were a PE teacher or training to be a PE teacher etc etc Presumably, you weren't playing quite as much cricket as somebody like Ashley Giles would have been doing at the same age. Yeah, and no, I didn't start playing cricket until I was just short of my 14th birthday. And there was a cricket club down the road from where we, where we, I grew up. A really good club. Uh, they played all around Scotland, and some good players came through there. All my mates, they were they played rugby and, and cricket, and I played I played football and golf. So that was my winter sport, summer sport. I'd never really played much cricket other than just messing around, you know, with my mates and stuff. Uh, and then the, the team, it was an under-13 team, so I'd have been 13. The under they were short in a big game they were playing, and I got a knock on the door said, can you come and play? I was like, cool. And within, I was just, I was grabbed by the sport straight away. I loved it. Um, and then by the time I was 19, I was down at Warwickshire. So and were, you, were, you, on were you good at it straight away? Did you suddenly find that you got no, an attitude for it? Or? I don't think so. I think I must have had some kind of, Acumen. I must have been, you know, reasonably skilled um, in order for you know me to develop my way and, and to to make sure that I gave myself a chance to get to the next level. But the one thing I was, I'd say is I'm, I'm quite a determined character, and, and the fact that I loved it so much as well, I was spending quite a lot of time investing in myself. You know, whether it was getting fitter or stronger, or and um, you know, learning to bowl a bit quicker or a bit more skillfully, or batting a bit better, feeling a bit better. So I was. You know, I always wanted to try and improve, and I think I was fortunate to be in an environment, even at an early age, whereby that was sort of really encouraged. But was I a skillful player? I don't think I was. No, I was just somebody who worked really hard, and you know, that's kind of been a mantra of mine all the way through my career. That you know, if you work hard, you can take a certain amount of luck out of the game. You know, you just you know, then it's down to your ability. Um, if you work harder than somebody, you give yourself a slightly better chance, whether they're more skilled or not. You hear a lot of people say. Oh, when I was 14, he was better. When I was 16, he was an absolute megastar. We thought he was going to go on and play test cricket. And the, these guys that they're talking about never actually played first-class cricket even. And there's a lot of stories, aren't there? I mean, like you've just said, but Andrew Gale at Yorkshire, I know he, he, he saw the, some of the Yorkies in, in his age group and thought, oh, I'm never going to be as good as them. But he, he kind of knuckled down, gritted his teeth and made sure he got every ounce of uh, skill out of his body. And there's a lot to be said for that, isn't there? That determination. I couldn't agree more. It- you know, if, if people are bigger and stronger than you, they rely on their power, their strength, their speed. 
actually what if you don't have that you have to rely on your your nose your um, your skill and your work at your skills and you chip away at them and your resilience and, and your determination when it comes down to playing professional sports well I, I can talk about professional cricket a lot of the time it doesn't really come down to your skills or it comes down to your resilience your determination to get through difficult situations and I think if you've been in a difficult situation early in your early in the piece and you understand and you, you're actually at ease with being in a in a tricky situation, whatever that is, whether you're under pressure, whether it's a physical thing, whether it's a mental thing, and you're at ease in that environment, I do think it makes you, your um, ability to make decisions when you're out in the field and you're under the pump, it makes it a whole lot easier. Uh, sometimes when, when it's all just a bit too easy for, for people, they don't actually put themselves into that environment whereby they're stretched either psychologically or with regard to the resilience because everything's just been so easy. Professional sport, irrespective of how good you are, is going to test you in, in that domain. So I think having had a chance to experience it early was, was something that really was beneficial to me going through my career. What's been the best moment in your cricketing career? If I could take you back to any 24 hours in your, in your lifetime and you could relive it again, where would you like to take me? Okay, obviously, First Lord's final is, is a pretty special occasion. And that was that was phenomenal. I, I would I would love to be in that position again. You know, opening the ball and running in the ball, bowling the first ball, opening the ball with Alan Donald at Lord, twenty odd thousand people there, running in, remembering that feeling of not being able to feel the ball in your hand because you're so nervous that you just physically have lost any feeling, and you're running into ball and you're you're hoping that the ball actually just goes somewhere close. You're describing my club cricket career there. <laughs> <laughs> It's, it, honestly, it, it's hilarious. It's, and I, I can remember that feeling to this day, running in and not being able to feel the ball in my hand. And you honestly, you're hoping that the ball goes somewhere near the cut piece, never yeah. mind the stump, never mind the top of the stump. You know, and, and as soon as that, you get that in there, it's actually, it kind of goes away. And it, so I would go back to that because I, I love that. That was an incredible experience. But I think the one thing that I would love to go back to, and that was my debut when I made my debut, championship debut at Guildford, in 94, um, going out to bat, we were under the pump, we, we batted first, and I was batting at number 10, and we were 120 for eight, uh, and just went out there and, and freed myself out, I was batting with Graham Welsh, so both two young lads coming through at the same time, sort of making their way in the game together, and it was just brilliant, and looking back, you realise how significant that was in the context not just of the game but in the context of the season obviously 94 Warwickshire went on won the treble won the championship playing Surrey at Guildford Surrey was top of the championship at the time Warwickshire was second uh, and we were struggling um, myself and Welsh put on 120 for the ninth wicket I got 50 odd he got 50 odd and we were just having fun it was like two young young pups going out there trying to outdo each other he played great shot and I'm like oh, and I want a bit of that as well and then you play a shot you think I'd I've no idea where that shot came from because I've never played it before. I'll probably, you know, I haven't played it since. But actually, you're just caught up in the moment. You're having fun. Uh, and that was amazing. And, and knowing that it was such a pivotal part of the season for Warwickshire because, you know, <laughs> won the game and, and took a lot of confidence from that into the next part of the season. And, you know, clearly at the end of the season, you look back and you've won a treble and runners up in the fourth competition who knows what might have happened had had you know a young welsh and a young brown not sort of you know got stuck in and had a bit of fun and managed to put on that, that 120 for the ninth wicket which 
turned out to be a match-winning contribution. That Warwickshire team that you were a member of was rather special, wasn't it, for a number of years, not just that not just that season. When you're sitting in a dressing room like that and you're looking around at the some fantastic players in that side, do you, at the time, do you actually appreciate just how special it is or is it only looking back now that you think, wow, that was something to be part of? No, nah, you, you know the time. Like everybody, uh, whether you're a coach or player, this, it goes, what you're trying to do, you're trying to build something like that. And every team does it at the start of the year. And it's a, it's a really complex uh, equation. You know, it, it takes a lot of a lot of skill to get to that point, a lot of planning, but it takes a lot of luck as well. You know, things have to fall your way. And we, we had a lot of things that fell away that season and, and subsequent seasons. But you get to a point whereby you know you're on something special. And actually, you go into a game with the expectation that you're just going to win, e- even if you get behind the game at some stage or you, you, you know, you're in a little bit of a rut. You just know that you've got absolute trust in every single person in that dressing room and that any one of them at any stage can do something special to get the team out of the position they're in, to back the parity and then get themselves ahead of the game. And that's what happened time and time again in the 94 season particularly. But then again in, in 95 when we won a double, it was, it was every single person was just trusted to go out and do the job and supported unbelievably. When you're in it, you know what it feels like, but it's really hard to just get in it. You, you know, you only realise you're there when when you're all there, and it's you just you just understand what that feeling is. And um, but it's really really difficult to to get into that point. You know, first of all, because if, if it was easy, everybody would be mm. would be there, and that's it doesn't really happen. You know, it happens once every every blue moon, and we were lucky. It happened. You know, it was there for a couple of years, and it's just an amazing place to be because you just know that irrespective of the game situation, you're going to go and somebody's going to do something special and you're going to get ahead of the game. And that's a really powerful thing because it frees you up. There's no fear of failure. Uh, and you just go and play your game. And, and more often than not, you come out on top. What you just described there is that word momentum, isn't it? When people use that word momentum for a team in good form, it's, it's getting into those little 50-50 passages of play and getting used to winning them, isn't it? And then that snowballs and all of a sudden you're flying, aren't you? And that, that's what's... Uh, that's what that Warwickshire team did for a couple of seasons, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, there were some great players. You know, Brian Lara is a good start. You know, phenomenal player at the top of his game. Amazing. And I think a lot of people took a lot of, a lot of positivity away from the fact that he was in the dressing room because, you know, they wanted to show him. It was like the Brian Lara effect. You know, Roger Tooze wanted to show Brian Lara that he was as good a left-handed batter than what Brian was. He wasn't. But it didn't matter because in his own head, he had convinced himself that he was every bit as good as Brian. And he wanted to show Brian every time he batted. And he did. You know, and we were the same. You we were wrapped up in winning. We wanted to show the captain and other players that we belonged in that environment as well. And, you know, you ended up performing well and you did show people. And it was the whole thing is like a self-fulfilling prophecy. But actually getting to that point in the first place is, is really difficult. And it leads a lot of luck as well. You know, the right thing to happen at the right time, just by good fortune. And then all of a sudden you start believing your fortune is actually stuff that you've actually made, you know, you've actually constructed it in, in such a way as that's how, how it was meant to come. It probably isn't. It's a lot of skill to get you to that point, but it's a lot of luck as well. What's been your worst moment in cricket? We've talked about a few good times. What's been the worst? What's been the dark time? Oh, I had a few. <laughs> oh, probably every second game. <laughs> I, wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't a well bit of any stage. What's been the... What's been the the worst one like on the on field no nothing like you know you go into sport knowing that you can't be brilliant all the time at some stage you're gonna 
full foul of the game and that's the thing you, you fail more times than you succeed and that's I think if you go in with that balanced attitude you you don't really have any really shocking things obviously you know as a, as a coach when um, you, you lose your job that you know that's not ideal so obviously when when I finished at Warwickshire that was a bit of a bit of a hammer blow but you know you, you soon dust yourself down and, and learn from it and and move on reflect move on and, and actually that ends up being part of your part of your makeup going into the next role that you undertake so there's no I didn't I've never really had really dark times I've had times where you're a bit a bit annoyed frustrated with the way things have happened but you you know you have to be quite resilient you have to be quite thick-skinned and you just kind of learn from it and, and crack on with the next thing and that's quite a, a healthy attitude to have isn't it if you're successful don't get too far ahead of yourself and don't get too exuberant and if you have some dark times don't get too hard on yourself just try and keep that even keel yeah, I mean, I, I used to call it my worst case scenario. It's like, okay, so going out to bat, it's, it's terrible sitting waiting to bat. You know, you get quite nervous and that sort of stuff. And, you know, it's, it's quite hard when you're watching what's happening, especially if somebody's in the middle of a, a pretty decent spell or the game's hitting, you know, in the balance or whatever it is. And there's always that fear of failure. I, I, I called it my worst case scenario. So if I went out and I got out first ball today, is it going to change your life? No, it's not. Okay, you face your first ball and it's, it's okay. Uh, if you get a second ball for not, is it going to change your life? No, it's not. So when you get one off your legs and you get a couple or whatever, and, and slowly but surely you just keep chipping away at that worst case scenario. You know what's the worst thing that can happen with a with ball? Get, get out. If I get out, what is the outcome of me getting out? It's not going to. You, know, you don't die. It, it doesn't change your life. But slowly but surely, over the course of your innings or that stage of the game, you turn it into a massive positive. So actually, you've got to 30, 40, 50, 60, 70. Actually, now you're you're slowly making a change in the game, and you're actually you're affecting the game positively. So now you start to think all you think about is the positive outcomes, not the negative ones. It's like okay, if I get if I get a match winning 130 here, is that going to change my life? Well, yeah, it might do. You know, because I might get selected for this, or I might get an opportunity to do that, or whatever it is. And I used to try and use every sort of situation in a positive way. So the negative, I try to just get rid of as best as I could. Is it possible to get rid of it all? I mean, I've, a lot of players nah. talk about the fear of failure. I mean, I've read Nasser Hussain's autobiography, which uh, he talks about, he, he had tremendous self-doubts and, and always went in there looking yeah. at where the fielders were to catch the ball rather than where he's going to score runs. And, and I've spoken to other, I've spoken to golfers about this as well. And like, almost like, you know, you, you're going down the stretch, you're going down plenty of teams and you, you need to, you've got a wide open fairway or maybe it's not a wide open fairway, but there's trouble left, trouble right. You know, it's worst case scenario is if I if I block it right and it goes out of bounds, it changed my life. I guess it's all down to what that answer is. If the answer is yes, it does change my life, then you're not using it for the right sort of yeah. the right effect. Yeah. You know, again, I, I just try to I just try to strip it right back and keep it as here and now as I possibly could do. And and actually, if there was a bad outcome in that one thing, it, it, I didn't let it affect me in too negative a way and I think that way it kept me sort of you know slightly ahead of my emotional state and and my psychological state um, and I think that really helped me and when I got I became at ease with using that strategy I actually my game started to to become better and better because then you took away you stripped back the fear of fear it's still there but you learn to deal with it in a different way and then it doesn't become quite as prevalent as it may have done at the start of your career it's that Badger style. 
There we go. That's the end of the first part of the chat with Dougie Brown. Hopefully you're enjoying it. If so, turn me off. Stop me waffling. Part two is already out there for you to enjoy as well. So get your teeth into that one. I'll see you on the other side. Sports Social Podcast Network.